In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis of all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, and today I'm joined by the AJC's Washington correspondent, Tamar Hollerman. You're here in Atlanta for another big, huge celebration, which is the start of early voting. Early voting started last week. We got three weeks of it until the July 24th runoff, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and. You know, it's it's interesting because we only just recently started getting the demographic data from from the primary <laughs> that happened at the end of May. Um, so a lot of the campaigns use that data to kind of decide how they want to strategize ahead of the, um, you know, ahead of the primary runoff. I um, mean, you did a story with our colleague Mark Nisi about all that. So tell me a little bit about what you found. The biggest takeaway from that is the the sheer number of African American voters just jolted. It just it skyrocketed. It rose forty three percent in that May primary when compared with 2010, which was the last time we had a truly competitive uh, race for governor in the primary. Uh, and that's according to this giant trove of data we, we just recently got back from the Secretary of State. Um, the data showed the broad majority of African-American voters pulled Democratic ballots, which is to be expected. Um, and at the same time, it showed the proportion of white voters continues to decline. White voter participation was down 9% compared to 2010, and white voters uh, while they're more likely to be conservative, just 30% of them uh, voted Democratic. So that shows you a little bit where of where the electorate is moving. Now, you know, this this might be very good news for the Stacey Abrams campaign for governor. Um, you know, she's hinging all of all of this on, on getting a surge of participation from minority voters. Um, so what do these numbers uh, say about her effort? Her entire strategy is essentially uh, what Democrats have done over the last four to, to six electoral cycles hasn't worked is what she argues, going after moderate voters, uh, going after trying to get suburban swing voters who, who might have voted Republican and who aren't anymore, doesn't work anymore. She's trying to energize left-leaning liberal voters who might have been turned off by the party's politics, who might have been turned off by the stance towards uh, uh, guns. guns or health care or whatever, or tax policy. And you know, we now have a candidate who is advocating for gun control, the first Democratic gubernatorial candidate to do that in decades, who's calling for essentially an increase in taxes. She wants to reverse an income tax uh, cut in order to pay for the expansion of Medicaid. Um, So you're having her follow these sort of very unconventional pathways, try to energize those same voters that she thinks will show up just like they showed up in May, but show up in even greater numbers in, in November. 
and, and flip the state for the first time. Now, she spent the last few years as part of her new Georgia project, you know, registering new voters all across the, the state, particularly in the Southwest, where, where she says there's a lot of untapped kind of potential. Um, do we see a surge in new voters as, as part of that data? Anything that, that we know about that? Yeah, it's more mixed about how many new voters are actually voting. Um, what we're seeing a lot are voters who haven't voted in past primaries, but who tend to vote in general elections, get more energized. And that might be because of Stacey Abrams. That might be, be because of, of, of the general anti-Trump mood among a lot of Democrats. That might just be because um, this is the first competitive, re- truly competitive Democratic primary since 2010. So some of these voters skipped the 2014 primary because Jason Carter was the only Democrat on the ballot then. And there was also a U.S. Senate contest that Michelle Nunn easily won. She had a couple of other opponents, but she never really got a big scare from them in that primary. So um, that that sort of helps shape that dynamic. Um, and anything new that we learned about Republican voters in Georgia, because we've known for a long time it's become kind of a white, you know, it's become more of a white party, a more conservative party. Um, anything based on the data that, that perhaps we didn't know before as, um, you know, Casey Cagle and Brian Kemp try and double down on their base even more? The biggest takeaway I had, and this is, again, compared to the 2014 primary, um, so it's not a perfect comparison because Nathan Deal did have Republican opponent back then, um, two Republican opponents, but he was also the the big, huge favorite. But um, Republicans outvoted Democrats in that 2014 primary by about 265,000 ballots. This year, the GOP edge was only about 50,000 ballots. Overall, Democratic primary voters shot up by 40% since 2010. Republicans declined by 10%. So you're starting to see Democrats narrow that gap. And Democrats are very excited about this because they feel like uh, the, the general election, they're going to get four or five points higher on the general election turnout no matter what. So they're starting to narrow that gap now. Um, they're, they're very enthusiastic. Republicans, though, will be able to streamline a ton of, once, once they're unified, once they're behind whoever their nominee is, and that's, unification still a big issue because it's a very bitter race, uh, but they feel like they're able to channel a lot of money, a lot of energy, um, not just statewide, but also nationally. This is one of the the premier gubernatorial contests in the nation. There's only a few really, really competitive ones like this race. And the fact that Stacey Abrams is on the ballot running to be the nation's first African-American female governor has gotten a lot of national attention. And, and I'm sure the Democrats are hoping they can kind of ride this wave of energy that, that you've seen since Donald Trump was inaugurated. Um, and certainly the party that's in power on, on Capitol Hill and in the White House, um, in general, they tend to lose seats in, in every election, no matter who's in, in power. Um, at the same time, off, um, you know, off cycle election years when there's not a president on the on the ballot, often it's harder to get Democrats to turn out. Um, usually it's the most reliable voters who are going to the polls. And usually that's an older crowd. And, and usually that means it's a more Republican crowd. So I, I still think they have a bit of an advantage going into November. But um, but I guess we'll see. That's why this runoff is such a big deal for the Republican candidates, because it's going to be such a small turnout. And they're really pushing for that conservative fervent base that will show up in the dead heat of summer. And we're seeing that right now. I mean, this is a lot of people are on vacation. It's a very bizarre time to start early voting. I get why they did it, because there's always three weeks ahead of the vote. But they started last week on July 4th week. A lot of people gone, a lot of people, you know, wanting to get anywhere but steamy Atlanta. (laughs) And to think about anything other than steamy politics, right? You want to disconnect when you're at the beach, not think about, you know, what's happening in Washington or or the latest scandal in your gubernatorial primary. So 
And it's hard enough <laughs> for the gubernatorial contenders to get people to show up. Imagine if you're running for the 6th or 7th district and you're trying to get voters, uh, Democratic voters, to come back when there's not even a big ticket. You know, the, the biggest statewide uh, race on the, super, uh, on, the, on the statewide Democratic ballot is the superintendent's race, which is, you know, very, very low profile. So imagine if you're one of these candidates, these four candidates uh, who are runoffs in the 6th and 7th district trying to get people back. And all of these candidates are political newbies. Um, you know, they don't have big names attached to themselves from years in, in politics or anything like that. So they started from nothing when they, they came in. So for sure, building that, that name ID, especially when you, you know, when you don't have that that name recognition. National groups are not really jumping into this race, with the exception of one. Every town for gun safety in the 6th District race, they have Lucy McBath, one of the two Democrats vying to take on Karen Handel. She's a former spokeswoman for the group. She lost her son to gun violence in 2012. That group has spent upwards of at this point, $900,000 in this primary race, which is crazy when you think about it for a primary, um, just trying to get her name out. Um, and even then, you know, it still wasn't in the, in the primary. She still didn't steamroll the competition. So it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah. It's all about turnout. How are they getting, how are these candidates, not just in the 6th, but also in the 7th, how are they trying to mobilize voters um, to, to, to get back out to the polls for it? For, pretty low profile contest right now. Sure. I mean, I think a lot of them are, are trying to double down on different groups that, that might not or, you know, might have been ignored in past groups. You see David Kim up in, in Gwinnett County. He's the son of, of uh, South Korean immigrants. Um, he spent a lot of time rallying the immigrant community in the 7th um, to try and get them on board with his campaign. And, and he's really doubled down on that. His his uh, competitor, Carolyn Bordeaux, a, a GSU professor, has spent a lot of time with, uh, with, with women's focused political groups, uh, such as Pave It Blue um, that have kind of helped her mobilize and, and get the word out too. So it'll be interesting to see if they change it all in the next few weeks. I'm really not expecting it. Um, and, it and it really is who can get their people out uh, in the heat of summer. Yeah, it's just it's a tough sell. Uh, there was a the debate that I helped moderate a couple weeks ago uh, and a lot of interested voters, I mean, a lot of voters, uh, probably two or 300 voters uh, packed into a uh, auditorium to listen to both uh, Kevin Abel and Lucy McBath, and in the um, sixth district, in the sixth Democratic district. race, yeah, yeah. And, and they're running for the right to to, to challenge Karen Handel, um, and it was a big, you know, enthusiastic crowd for a, for a weeknight, and it was really interesting to hear both the candidates, and I think all the all the voters left um, more knowledgeable about their their positions, uh, but that was the crowd that is, if you're going to show up to a, a weeknight debate, you're going to vote no matter what. Their their challenge is reaching out to the you know tens of thousands of voters who voted in, in last year's special election who aren't really tuned into this race because last year you could barely you could hardly miss that race between John Ossoff and Karen Handel. Well this year it's 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 a lot more under the radar. It's harder for for the candidates to get attention. It's harder for to get for them to get their platforms out. What, how do you think the dynamic of that race is shaping so far? I mean, so far, you've, you've especially seen with Karen Handel where she doesn't want to engage yet. Um, she's just trying to keep her head down, focus on her work in Washington, and fundraise heavily. Build up that war chest so that whoever comes out of this race at the end of July, she'll be ready to just pummel if she needs to or even ignore if she can get away with it. Um, as for the Democrats, you know, the, they're fighting, you know, uh, their platforms are perhaps a little more liberal than what we saw from John Ossoff. I don't, you covered that race. I don't know if you disagree with me. They're, they're, 
I guess what I'm trying to say is that they're not as um, scared to take on Donald Trump directly. Uh, John Ossoff kind of came in with this resistance message, but toward the end, he really wanted to appeal toward the middle and really hesitated to you know, to take on the president directly. With Kevin Abel and Lucy McBath, and, and even the two candidates in the seventh, they are not afraid to criticize him, especially on immigration, especially on health care. Um, but I wonder if that could hurt them when it comes to the general direct, uh, election a little bit later this year. Um, so I guess we'll have to see. I think they're still stung, especially in the sixth district, by what happened to Ossoff. I mean, yeah, he started the race uh, being a very vocal opponent of Donald Trump. He did sort of back off uh, especially as it got towards the special election phase of this race. I remember one at one point where Donald Trump came to town and directly criticized Ossoff. Ossoff didn't directly criticize Trump back. I think he criticized Handel instead. Um, you know, so it, it, it was a, a sort of different strategy than, than these candidates are taking. Um, but at the same time, they also know that this is a Republican-leaning district. And at that debate... It was said over and over again, I don't want to do what Ossoff did. Ossoff did, worked his butt off and, and ran a very good campaign, in, in their words, but he still only got 48% of the vote. They want to bridge that gap. They want to get that extra 2-plus percent of the vote that Ossoff couldn't get. And to do that, it requires either energizing left-leaning voters in a way that he couldn't, depressing Republican turnout, or reaching out more to the middle. Yeah, and there's some lip service now about reaching out to the middle, but I don't, you know, I haven't seen any outreach on, on issues that I personally think Republican voters will, will really animate them. You know, a lot of them are super critical about the president's immigration policies, especially when it comes to Dreamer Kids, the, the DACA program. Um, immigration is, is such an, you know, is an issue that animates the right a lot. I don't know if criticizing the president on something like that is the is the way to go. On the other hand, there are a lot of, you know, disaffected suburban Republican women, you know, the exact kind of people John Ossoff wanted to win, um, who, who perhaps aren't as happy about the immigration policies. Um, but perhaps we can see more of an economic message coming uh, a little later from them. Who knows? And these two candidates, they do have, sub, uh, especially in the sixth, um, Abel and McBath, they have very similar policies when it comes to guns, they have very similar policies when it comes to uh, economy and health care and, and some of their options. Um, but immigration is another interesting one because we have, I mean, Kevin Abel is a, a an immigrant from South South Africa. Um, and so he has he has a very sort of it's a, sort of a sweet spot for him. Exactly. And what's interesting about him and, and something we could see more of if he makes it beyond the runoff. You know, he's a businessman and has been in the district. He, he talks about it all the time for 25 years working as, as a businessman. Perhaps if he um, kind of uses that a little bit more, talks more about an economic message, perhaps there will be more room to kind of win people over or maybe not. I don't know. I've been <laughs> I've been surprised before uh, in Georgia politics. So. And again, because there's going to be such low turnout, I and mean, we're talking about low turnout statewide for the Republican gubernatorial contest, um, but there's going to be even, it's going to be even smaller turnout, I'm sure, for the sixth and seventh district. And there's been a ton of there's been a ton of complaints about you know political operatives working in this race because they feel like the governor's race has totally taken the oxygen out of the room. It's so hard to court donors when they all want to spend on the governor's race or spend on the all the other competitive races going on around the country. You know, donors can go wherever they want. They don't have to keep their money in Georgia. So how do you compete against kind of the hottest races nationwide? It's really really difficult. And at least for the sixth and seventh district candidates, there's still very local, intense localized energy around those campaigns. Imagine if you're running for Secretary of State or Lieutenant, Lieutenant Governor, there's two runoffs on the Republican side for that, or school superintendent with the Democratic runoff statewide. Very little um, energy and activity, although the candidates are trying their best to try to focus energy on it. On the Lieutenant Governor's race in particular, you have David Schaefer who came within a hair of winning 
in May without a, with, without being forced into a runoff. And Jeff Duncan is trying to pull out all the stops to try to pull off an epic upset and beat him in, in the runoff. He's even gone to links of setting up a website for anonymous tips about David Schaefer for voters to write in you know, alleged scandals and, and issues that, that we as reporters should look into involving Schaefer. So it, it's, it's a very uh, different sort of tactic this late in the game. It's never boring. Well, we really appreciate you being here tomorrow. Uh, thanks for being here in person. I'm not just a disembodied voice on a telephone. I know it's weird. <laughs> and that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us if you like what you're hearing. And as always, thank you for listening. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.